Hey, I'm Mark A. Altman. And I'm Darren Dockerman. And I'm Ashley Miller. And we're here to tell you about an exciting new documentary from, well, us. To celebrate the upcoming 60th anniversary of the filming of The Cage, we put together the ultimate love letter to Star Trek, in which we boldly go to filming locations from almost six decades of Star Trek. We are going to crisscross the globe, or at least Southern California, in search of the coolest Star Trek filming locations. We're not only going to tell you the history of these amazing locations, but we're going to tell you about the episodes that were filmed there and give you details you never knew. It's a regular landing party from Vasquez Rocks to the Sepulveda Reclamation Dam to Bronson Caves and uh, Golden Gate Park and even the Embarcadero where Chekhov looked for the nuclear vessels. You'll go with us on an incredible adventure as we crisscross the country in search of adventure and uh, food occasionally while sharing stories about the making of hundreds of incredible locations and episodes. Plus, you never know who'll drop by, drop in, drop out to share their memories and maybe even their food. We've already announced burlesque superstar, Hazel Honeysuckle. But you can expect an array of Star Trek stars, writers, directors, and super fans, not just ourselves, as featured on our hit podcast, Inglorious Trexperts, to drop by and share their own stories as well. Well, we are truly going to run because we are going to make this film and we're going to make it happen today with your help. There may not be money in the future, but there is now. Send us your gold plus latinum because this is a chance to help us make the trek today. And rest assured, this is a team of industry professionals who, like Captain Jellico, will get it done. As uh, most of you know, Mark's Greatest Geek Year Ever documentary just debuted to rave reviews on The CW. And he has been a showrunner and writer-producer on such popular series as Pandora, The Librarians, and Castle. And I personally was shocked to learn that Darren was an associate producer and visual effects supervisor on some movie called Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. And he's a Hollywood concept designer on major feature films and TV series, including Master and Commander, X3, and Star Trek Picard. You may not know this, but Ashley Edward Miller is the screenwriter for such blockbusters as Thor, X-Men First Class, and the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood on Netflix. Join us on the ultimate road trip, or is it a road trek? Either way, keep on trekking, ingloriously of course. And join us on Kickstarter or at makethetrek.com and trekspertsplus.com for more information on how to make the trek happen. Would you like to know more? I, I would. Sure would. Sure you would. Join us at San Diego Comic-Con, GalaxyCon in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Las Vegas's 57-year mission. For more details all summer long, along with the super toys, uh, and grow stronger through the share. <laughs> Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek.
what you were saying about uh, you know master and commander uh, and uh, and shogun uh, because it is it is a a great way to sort of break the story and and have a guide for how to establish interesting characters that you actually care about yes and how to put them into into situations which are difficult for them but they can figure it out because they are good characters mm. no and and i and i think that's what's great about I, I mean i guess i always looked at this as some kind of a genre story fantasy science fiction even though it's a historical epic obviously but oh, really totally. it was it was a man delving into in my mind an alien culture absolutely and i might not have i mean i was interested in it because i'm like ooh samurais are in it you know and right. but it was so much more than that and and because of when it hit me i was so fascinated I mean, it made me almost want to learn Japanese at the time, but then it was, well, of course. I, I went to look into learning Japanese and it was really hard. It was really hard. Oh, You'd have to, okay. yes. you know, not just learning the language, but actually finding a place that would teach it at the time. Right. Uh, for me being 13, I couldn't drive. So it, it was sort of. A little difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so funny uh, because the story, as I said before, is presented in such an adult fashion. Yet yes. it's not it's not it's not presented in a confusing way. No. That uh younger people like us could completely understand what was going on. Oh uh, no, absolutely. So subscribe today at TrexfirstPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the Rockets. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And today we are boldly going. We're boldly going somewhere you may not so be familiar boldly. with. We're going to the 40 Acres Lot studio backlots that was owned by Desilu, where they filmed the original Star Trek pilots. And uh, it's really fascinating. The history of 40 Acres is, is really interesting. And to talk about it, we brought in Stephen Bingham. And Stephen is the, was a former archivist and staff historian at Warner Brothers, but he's the author of the book, Hollywood's Lost Backlot, 40 Acres of Glamour and Mystery, which is a terrific book. Uh, which only touches on Star Trek, but a terrific book about the history of uh, the lot here in Culver City. Um, he's also written MGM, Hollywood's Greatest Backlot, Paramount City of Dreams, Warner Brothers, Hollywood's Ultimate Backlot, and Easy Rider, 50 Years Looking for America, as well as the 50 MGM movies that transformed Hollywood. Uh, is a terrific uh, a scholar and uh, archivist, and we're delighted to have him joining us today. Hello, guys. Good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about this episode. I, I've always been fascinated by this 40 acres backlot. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of it changed hands a lot and went through a lot of uh, legendary um, people. And it is in so many things that you do not realize. Yeah, yeah, they will after they listen to this episode, I presume. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, speaking of lost things, I bought many years ago. 
this gold Cylon at Tower Records. It was exclusive, one of these 12-inch gold Cylons. And uh, it was a Tower Records exclusive. I was very happy to have it. And for years, my son has been asking me to open the gold Cylon. And I'm like, no, it's a Tower Records exclusive. It's outlasted. It's outlasted. Um, Lost the tower tower records. records. Yeah. So I was like, I can't, I can't do it, Sally. And um, finally I gave in and we opened the box. Oh no. Was Gwyneth Paltrow's head inside? Nope. The gold oh. silo was in there, but it was, it was, it was, it was the end of an era. I'd had this maybe, I don't know, 25 years or so. And, uh, and, and, uh, but we have this beautiful, Shelf, and I have to say, you're going to be disappointed because I only have so much room in the display case. So we cleared out the Space 1999, the Comlock, and the uh, the Phase pistol and oh, the Eagle you. to make room for the Gold Cylon, the Silver Cylon, and uh, the uh, the wonderful uh, Galactica and Silent Base Stars from Eagle Moss that I fortunately acquired before they went out of business. So we have a nice Galactica shelf beneath the uh, next to the James Bond toys beneath the Star Trek figures and uh, uh, um, the Star Wars figures. And, uh, but it's a little, it was a little, it was a little hard to, to come to terms with this, the, the lack, you know, opening the gold Cylon. Yeah. I, I don't know how you did that. I honestly like, look, part of me wants to say, you know what? I mean, who, who are we to, to judge? You're a dad. He's your son. He's asking for this thing. And yet when I put myself in your position, I can imagine myself saying, no, <laughs> just, well, and I, I don't have a lot of room now for those much nicer dad than I am. Those XO, um, XO six, XO eight, XO six. I don't have a lot of room because I have this, you know, now uh, Kirk and Spock and Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and that's that Mirasulu, which is just a gorgeous figure. And um, uh, yes, he is. And Mirasulu, Spock, <laughs> and um, and I have the old, uh, the old Khan from. Uh, 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 you know, that from that was done before they became XO6 from his old company. But I'm running out of room and I got to choose very wisely as to what I'm going to add to that shelf. But there's a dearth of a classic Star Trek, I have to say. And I just did not want Locutus. I, I just don't think it's just that, that great. I mean, I, he did a great job, but I, I just don't care. I, if, if I want a Picard figure, I want it to be Cap Picard. I don't want Locutus. Well, you know, uh, I can certainly uh, take possession of those Space 1999 things if you want. Uh, oh, no, I moved them up to my office. I didn't get rid or, of them. I moved them to my office. <laughs> or I can send an email to uh, Jamie Anderson and see what he thinks about the whole thing, about being used. Oh, you're not going to uh, tell him I replaced Space 1999 with Galactica, are you? You, <laughs> you know, you could just rotate it like I a museum. Want to. I don't want to tell him, but, uh, you know, things happen. Oh man, don't don't wrap me out to Jamie Anderson. That would be un, that would be. I mean, I was sort of forced into it. You were, he, forced uh, you know, he gave me yeah. the look. He gave me the look. He said it's time to 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 get the you know Comic Cons coming out up, and let's just get the gold Cylon on the shelf, and you know, plus the fact that I have a you know a teenage son that's into seventy eight Galactica. I, I had to throw him a bone on this. You know, I was like, okay, Put we'll do a Galactica room. shelf. Put it in his room. No. No, yes, I told yeah. you. I told oh, yeah. you at Deck Seventy Eight. So the whole he already took. He already took my Telly Savalas Blofeld to play uh, as Lex Luthor. Play Lex Luthor. Yeah, I you couldn't know figure what? out where it was. You you are learning the lesson about you know uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, 
right? Like he gave the mouse a cookie and now he wants a glass of milk. And pretty soon he's going to want a car. You don't want a mouse driving a car. An Aston Martin DB7. That's right. You're Aston Martin DB7. Or a Knight Rider. So uh, I tell you, I need it. I need a combat, a lock. I need to put a lock on the display case so he can't keep rifling through it and taking this stuff. Too late. That's right. Tally Savalas is Lex Luthor. Come on. I mean, that would have been cool. I mean, I get it. But I mean, but my James Bond (laughs) shelf is for now. (laughs) I I mean, the the Bond figures, those are, you know, those are pricey, nice figures. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I know he's not a huge Bond fan the way I am. Well, I know we're a fan of the 40-acre backlot. So we are, we are we and should. we're going to be doing that. And part, part of the reason, the impetus for this, is we have just launched a new Kickstarter, which you can find at makethetrek.com, makethetrek.com. And that's your way of uh, funding, helping us make this epic documentary uh, about the history of Star Trek locations. Now, it's not just a travelogue with the Trexperts. We are going to be bringing in stars, writers, directors, the kind of people you're used to hearing every week on Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, we're going to look at not just the locations, but the episodes that were filmed on these locations, as only we can, with a, a combination of incisive commentary and humor. And uh, I hope the only way to make this happen is to get your support. So if you go to makethetrek.com or go to Kickstarter and uh, check us out, and if you find it worthwhile, we hope you'll support uh, this Kickstarter because we are we are ready and raring to go. We really are excited about doing this. We're going to be announcing some of the talent that's going to be joining us, which is pretty extraordinary. Some we'll be announcing, some we can't quite tell you about yet. But um, there's some great Star Trek people that want to be involved because they know if they come out with us, they will be well-fed and <laughs> they will have fun. They will have fun and they'll be well-fed. Right. Food and, and fun have, and folks. And we'll make them ask. look good. And we'll make them look good and, and knowledgeable and ask them smart questions. So we're really excited uh, to be doing this. And uh, by September, we'll know if we have a partner or if we don't. And it's all up to you. You need to make this happen. You need to spread the word. And you know what? We understand times are tough. You can't afford to donate a lot of money. or bad, uh, then Make a little donation or spread the word on social. You may not be able to contribute. We get it. Doesn't mean you don't like us, but you can you can spread the word on social to let other people know about this very unique Kickstarter, so that we can uh, really preserve this lost part of Star Trek history. There hasn't been a lot done on the locations, but even if you're not that interested in the locations, we're going to deal with the episodes that were filmed there. It's going to really be, to steal a phrase, fascinating. So uh, we hope you'll join, Darren. Ashley, myself, and our special guests, as we boldly go where only Star Trek has gone before. Now, we're going to be joined by archivist, historian, author, Steve Bingen, as we go back in time to look at Hollywood's lost backlot, 40 Acres, where the original Star Trek pilots once filmed. Well, we're so excited to have Steve here today. You know, it's funny because... uh, when, you know, as a WGA member and now with SAG striking, they walk around Amazon and they have no idea the amazing history of, uh, of, of the lot there. They pass the, uh, the Tom Ince building and, uh, all, and, and, and just have no idea the things that have filmed there 
And uh, I, I sit there and talk and, and people's eyes glaze over. But I, um, I'm so, I've always been fascinated by the uh, 40 acres uh, uh, lot. And uh, Steve wrote a fantastic book called uh, Hollywood's Lost Back Lot, um, all about that. And uh, of course, uh, many, many other great books like the MGM uh, your book on MGM, Hollywood's Greatest Backlot, uh, a book about Paramount, Warner Brothers, Hollywood's Ultimate Backlot, Easy Rider. Which one isn't like the other? Easy Rider, 50 Years of Looking for America. Wait, America was the backlot. And um, <laughs> we uh, were just thrilled because, of course, the two Star Trek pilots, The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before, shot at 40 Acres, as did many of uh, location shoots for um, Star Trek over the first three seasons. So, Steve, if you if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about the history of this incredible backlight lot and why it was so unique in Hollywood history? Well, um, the place, it wasn't associated with one particular studio. You know, ordinarily, in the case of a movie studio, you'd say the Paramount backlot or the MGM backlot, and that would that would define it. That would be its identity. But this place was something else entirely different. It never had a it never had a corporate identity. It never had a corporate owner that lasted for long enough to impose any sort of corporate identity on the place. And so it took on the personality of whoever happened to be there and whoever happened to be working there at that particular moment. So, you know, MGM was just a few blocks up the road and there would be fans standing outside the gate all day long, you know, waiting to see their favorite movie star come and go out of the gate. And they didn't know that there was another movie studio just a couple blocks up the road. And there was nobody standing outside the gate there. You probably could have slipped the the guard a five spot and wandered in and watched some work. And it was basically a rental lot for most of its for most of its um, for most of its time on Earth. Um, obviously when Trek was there, it was Desi Lou yeah. and, um, Desi Lou owned it, but mostly it was just a rental facility. They shot their own shows there, but they also shot anything, um, where somebody could, could pay the bills. So it was right. an entirely different way of running a movie studio there. You know, the, the makeup department at MGM up the road probably had 40 people working at it and at, at the at the 40 acres back lot, there was like, there was one head of the department who basically would just wheel the, the makeup onto the lot, onto the stage and let whatever TV show was shooting there, apply it. So it was an entirely different way of running a movie studio, very kind of similar to how a lot of studios work today. And I think that uh, obviously most people are at all familiar with film. They know the storied history to an extent of the MGM back lot, which is now Sony, which is, um, and they know uh, obviously more stars than there were in heaven and all the great stars that uh, uh, went in and out of MGM and uh, so many great stories. What they don't know about uh, 40 Acres is so many of the amazing films that shot there. It started as a backlot for the, in the silent era, didn't it? Yeah, it sure did. Cecil B. DeMille um, shot uh, The King of Kings there. And years later, they shot The Greatest Story Ever Told there. George Stevens did. So you had two visits by Jesus at that one studio. <laughs> well, and, and I love that um, the, the, a lot of the King of Kings sets ended up finding their way into another King movie, uh, King Kong, for when RKO had the lot. That's right. The Great Wall uh, for Kong that kept Kong out. 
was um, was originally the, the the temple in the King of Kings. So they basically just turned in the. If you watch the King of Kings, it was actually an interior set, but they had it had these huge fifty foot walls, and so they realized that by putting a gate on these walls, it could it could be the outside of a jungle. Apparently, if you opened up the gate and looked through, the jungle set was on the kind of on the far side. So by looking through the opening. It was probably a good inspiration for Kong. Imagine a fifty-foot gorilla stomping around in those in those paper mache trees out there. And if you looked really closely, you could see Johnny Weissmuller uh, playing Tarzan, yet another king, the king of the jungle, king of the apes, in a bunch of the Tarzan movies. Yeah, all the RKO Tarzan movies were shot out there. I, so, I, I think uh, king Kong would have done a, a quick job on uh, on Tarzan. Uh, I think they would have been friends. Yeah, I think it would have had a similar resolution to King versus Bambi. Yeah, right. Probably the most iconic part of that lot, and it's still there because it was 1990. It was to create a landmark, is the old uh, Thomas Ince building, which is uh, right across the street from what used to be Kay and Dave's, which is not a landmark and uh, is now a Shake Shack. Um, can <laughs> that you is kind of a landmark? <laughs> well, which which people uh, mistake for being Tara. Although the, right. the walk, people the mistake that was, the walkway was, but not the main building. Yeah, it was obviously Gone with the Wind, famously filmed uh, on that lot. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the history of what you know when Selznick uh, took over that that building and 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 filming Gone with the Wind there? What film there? And many of those flats could still be found in warehouses and in the art department decades later. Yeah, you used to be able to walk out to um, the scene docks, and they had some. They had some old sets from Gone with the Wind. They had part of Scarlet's bedroom, and they had the the stained glass windows in the church during the siege of Atlanta. You could just walk back there and see them. And somebody put yellow tape around them and said, "Do not rent," because they they, they knew that these were valuable <laughs> items. And there was a son of one of the owners of the studio. This was during the the, the late nineties who was hanging around the studio and he saw the do not rent tape and he thought that meant that he could destroy them. So he got on a forklift and smashed everything to pieces. Oh, the only oh. thing that survived is a couple panes of glass. Apparently they still exist somewhere. Wow. How <laughs> was he put to death? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a very sad story. Um, the administration building actually was seen in Gone with the Wind as well. The driveway and the, the walkway going up to the house was the... Um, the big house that Rep Butler built for Scarlett O'Hara in, um, in Gone with the Wind. So the house was covered with a matte painting, but the driveway, you can see it, it looked exactly the same. There's a picture the day they started filming Selznick raising a Confederate flag on the flagpole in front of that building. And there's an interesting kind of divot on the top of the flagpole. And if you go out there to this day, you can still see it. That's probably the last Confederate flag that flew in California was that. Awesome. So, you know, the ghosts are there. You just yeah, have to yeah, find them. Yeah. I, I know when Amazon bought the place, and they didn't actually buy it. They're leasing it. But when they when, when they took over the property, they um, they went inside the administration building, which is very elaborate. Uh, it looks wonderful from the street, mm -hmm. but it's almost like a set. It's only about 15 feet deep. If you walk into it, you can walk right through it. There's, there's, yeah. I mean... It's got real offices in it, and there's a staircase going up to uh, up to the administration offices. But it's it was built to look better on the outside driving by on the street than it was to look from the inside. It's, it's basically so, one long hall of offices. Yeah, it's basically a hall of offices, really and that's it. 
Yeah. So there's not, but apparently Amazon got in and they said the place smelled like old lady. Well, well it's funny you say that one? because we had um, a, a good friend of ours who's an executive at Sony. You, Ashley, you must remember this from the one of the showrunner dinners, but uh, 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 but he swore that it was haunted. Yeah. They had all these stories, um, and you know, and I don't believe in that stuff, but it, it, it was pretty. Uh, they were pretty scared, and nobody wanted to work there at night, um, and had amazing stories about things that had transpired there that I was absolutely fascinated by. Yeah, every studio worth its salt has to have its ghost stories associated with it. I've, yeah. I've heard that Thomas Ince is walking the hallways. He's the the independent producer that built the place. Yeah, in nineteen eighteen, I think it was. Who was murdered uh, on the yacht uh, with? He Chaplin died under and, mysterious and, circumstances. Yeah. Let's put it that way. So yeah. it, was, it was his widow that sold the property to Cecil B. DeMille, and um, eventually RKO acquired the property. Right. And they're the ones that leased it out to Selznick. Selznick never actually owned the studio, mm -hmm. even though he used the administration building as his, as his logo for Jennifer decades. Yeah, right. Continued to maintain offices there for the rest of his life. The RKO was the the, the landlord. And one of um, my favorite stories that you have in the book—that's not really a story, but it, it, fun fact—is that Tara, which was you know dilapidated, falling apart for many years after production. I was finally raised to make way for the prisoner of war camp in Hogan's Heroes. Yes, if you look at Stylog 13, <laughs> they're, they're, the, the the funny Nazis are um, are mincing around in the exact same spot where Scarlett O'Hara um, sat on the porch at Terra. And so, apparently they knew nothing. That's I don't know. They definitely knew nothing. <laughs> I, I, almost I, 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 worked at, I worked on that lot for at least uh, three or four movies. Um, and always loved it. And uh, only uh, after about the third movie did I realize what history it had there as I walked around the lot. Of course, the the uh, the farthest back uh, um, uh, soundstage was the home of the Batcave for Batman. And uh, uh, and there were you know there was a, a marker on the on the wall that uh, said uh, all the various things that were shot there. Um, but it was also the very first uh, studio that I visited and, and worked at. I was I was a set dresser for a uh, still uh, photograph session for Life magazine uh, with uh, uh, Frank Zappa and his family, and uh, we were on one of the sound stages uh, making a little set for him. So I have uh, you know very close uh, ties to that uh, to the the Culver lot as it uh, as it was later called. But, and, it, and it's important, I guess, to distinguish the fact that. What is the Culver lot now? It's not the 40 acre. They, are, they were adjacent. Right. Yeah, it was literally in back of the main property. Yeah. You could uh, that, That's not where the term back lot originated. But in this right. case, it, it was literally, literally true. <laughs> and, and, and when people talk about how Century City used to be the old Fox lot until they had their financial problems in the late 60s and turned it into condos. I mean, Culver City was pretty much MGM. And 40 acres. And, you know, now it's obviously not. Yeah, those would have been the days. Uh, you know, I, I was a, I had a strange, I guess I still have a strange fixation. I've always thought that this, in the case of a movie studio, the, the factory is even more interesting than the product is. 
Mm. And, you know, God, I'm a, I'm a big movie and television buff, but I find myself wishing these annoying actors would get out of the way so I could see what Seth, Seth they're standing in front of, because I think that's <laughs> fascinating. I, remember, I used to watch these movies where Jerry Lewis or Pee Wee Herman or somebody would, would come to Hollywood and they'd climb over the fence in a movie studio and they'd have these wonderful adventures wandering around. And I remember thinking that would be fun. That would, that, that would be something that would be better than a day at Disneyland. Climbing <laughs> over the fence in these studios and wandering around. Well, and, I want to you know, ask you, because obviously so many great movies like Citizen Kane, I shot a lot of, of, of the movie there. They shot some stuff on the Chaplin stages on La Brea also, but um, there was a bunch of, you know, classic movies. You mentioned King Kong, Gone with the Wind that shot there. Obviously, when Desilu took over, a ton of television, like The Untouchables and Star Trek. But if you were driving a tour, like a universal tour bus around 40 acres, the 40, what would you tell us about? Give us a little tour. What would we be seeing as we drove around in that fantasy tour bus looking at 40 acres? I think what makes something like that, like a movie studio backlot fun is that you have you can have a jungle next to downtown New York, next to a Western town, next to a, uh, you know, next to, a, you know, a, a, the terrain for another planet. And the fact that when you walk around the corner, um, you see something entirely different is what makes it interesting. You know, anybody can go to New York and get interesting pictures of New York City, but making New York on a back lot, I think is much more interesting and much more creative. And you can make the New York that you, you know, that the screenwriter planned when he, when he wrote the, when he wrote the story. So wandering around so, a movie studio, like Colbert, like the, the fourth, the back lot would, you know, it's fascinating because it's, it's almost an improvement on reality. You know, their New York is going to be more New York than the real thing yeah. is because they, they've studied the real thing. But, certainly yeah. more New York than Toronto. Yeah. Certainly more New York than Toronto yeah. is. So, you know, I, I think that's what I think that's what would make that tour a lot of fun. Mm. You know, I, 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 I've actually I actually sat down and I wondered, like, you know, if I was going to go there and I was going to going to take that mythical tour, when would I want to do it? Right. And it's usually better to do these things later rather than sooner when everything's there. But before everything starts getting torn down, mm-hmm. Kara, for example, was there until 1959 and then they crated it up and shipped it to Atlanta and it stayed in, in the warehouse and back in, in the barn and back of a plantation there up until recently when they, they auctioned it off. But it'd be fun. You know, it'd be, it'd be fun. That it was, it was on the top of a little hill with artificial trees made of um, telephone poles oh on either side of it. You could walk down that and just to the left of that for a long time was Manderley from Hitchcock's Rebecca. Mm. And it wasn't, it was never a full size set. It was just a very large miniature. So huh. you'd find that. And, you know, if you, if you took this tour in the late fifties, you, there was, there'd also be a Western town that Desi Arnaz had built. Um, there was a big bluff for Westerns in the late fifties. And that was one thing that for, that 40 acres never had. So that was the only thing that he actually added to this, to, to the, to the place to improve it was, um, he built a Western town there. And, and Bonanza you, film okay. there, right? Excuse me? Bonanza film. Uh, yeah, film. Bonanza didn't film there all the time, but they were there, um, intermittently on and off. There's several, there, you can see it pretty well in quite, in several episodes. <laughs> But it, it, it never, other than Bonanza, it's hard to think of a, a quality Western that actually spent very much time there. But on the other side of the Western Street, there was something they called the Arab Village. Although I went through the production records, it was sometimes called Bijan Street, and sometimes it was called the um, the Moroccan Village, and sometimes it, 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 it was called the Spanish Village. So it, 
it's ethnicity dependent on how you dress the set, but it was, you can see it in a couple track episodes. You can yeah. see the, you know, it, it, it had like a, a raised platform and a bunch of like kind of Moorish architecture. Yeah. It and, was in the pilot. It was in the cage. They used yeah, it. You can, see it seven. you can see it in the cage. It's, and we were it, talking, we're talking about gone with the wind. Some of the, um, I think it's interesting that the cage shot in the same stage where, um, Rhett Butler said, frankly, my dear, I'm, I don't give a damn to Scarlett O'Hara. So yeah. you, you know, you've got one degree of separation between, between William Shatner and, and Clark Gable. Well, and they're also you know, Ernie I think Haller. It's wonderful. Ernie Haller, who shot that as the DP, was um, you know uh, uh, involved with the second you know Star Trek pilot where no man has gone before. Uh, but uh, so I want to I want to ask you since you bring up Star Trek because the other time they used the Arab town was for Aaron of Mercy, where uh, for Argania, um, which is which is so interesting. So Desilu uh, buys the lot. Uh, obviously, Desi Arnez is doing a lot. To, to keep the lights on because they have I Love Lucy, um, but they don't really put a lot of a ton of money into it. They're renting it and they're using it for their own productions. So they ask a young producer, Gene Ronberry, who just finished doing the Lieutenant for NBC, to to film his pilot sixty five, the cage, on those stages. But that was not a good experience for anybody for a multitude of reasons, including uh, that great quote from Robert Butler when they told him, "Oh, they shot Tara here." Uh, you know, and, and this is where Tara burns. He said, yeah, they should have burned these stages. <laughs> um, tell us why they were so unhappy with these stages that they were shooting. Apparently, well, if you, it's, it's like four stages in a row and um, the mill had built it and you can, you can, you could remove the walls to make it one long shooting space if you needed to, but that made the soundproofing bad on it. And there was a there was an unexplained trench running through the floor on one side of it. It was about six feet deep, so you could fall and and break your neck if you if you happened to not be paying any attention to what you were doing. And there was pigeons that were apparently they complained were, were were up in the roof and they were interfering with the sound recording. And they were you know they, everybody's a critic. They were apparently crapping on the sets as well. So they, I think that's why for their soundstage work after that Trek ended up going to the Desi Lu. Um, lot over next to Paramount, and that's where they yeah, shot yeah. most of the interiors after that, just because it was not a good experience for anybody, apparently. Because I, I love also the stories that the bathrooms were built, because these were all silent stages, so nobody cared about sound, that the, the bathrooms <laughs> were built adjacent to the sound stage. so every time somebody flushed the toilet, it would interrupt the take, so they had to post a PA uh, on the bathrooms to make sure nobody used them when they were filming. <laughs> which is the, just crazy the, the job that a PA has to do <laughs> and then uh, but they went back for where no man has gone before they shot those uh, uh, the second pilot there as well yeah they weren't and like I said after that it's you know I actually tracked on my Paramount book I tracked a bunch of the stages where they you know where they where they shot their um um their interiors and okay it's funny they they had a western street on um uh, at Paramount, right. and um, for some reason, though, when Trek did their what was their um, gunfight at the OK Corral episode, Specter of the Gun, yeah, Specter of the Gun, they use those, they use that kind of surrealist tactic of having on inside uh, on a stage, yeah, it, it, of having kind of cardboard sets, literally, yeah. like you know, like they weren't finished. Which, I, in a way, it's kind of interesting because it was almost like you know, when you think about what a Western town looks like, you you know. You, your imagination fills in a lot of the details. So that, you know, when Desi built his Western street at 40 acres, 
People said it wasn't as complete as some of the other Western streets that were elsewhere in town. But, you know, it didn't need to be. I remember people said, well, they were being cheap when they made, when they shot that episode of Star Trek because they, they didn't even finish the sets. But they were being cheap. They, I think it was an artistic decision. It looks great. They walked outside the stage and shot it on actual Western Street if that's what they wanted. But they wanted that artifice. I think yeah. that Bonanza yeah. actually was using the, uh, the Western set on Paramount at the time. They might have been, but I'm sure they could. I'm sure Trek could have slipped in for an for an afternoon if they needed uh, to. Not against the, one of the highest rated shows on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could, could have been. Maybe, maybe it was a uh, it was an economic decision. But, but even though uh, Star Trek ended up moving over to Melrose, um, they on the the RKO lot there, uh, uh, or the Desilu, what had become the Desilu uh, half before they married with Paramount. Star Trek went back to 40 Acres many times to avail themselves of a lot of the sets, most famously for City on the Edge of Forever, where they shot on the old Andy Griffith uh, uh, street. Yeah, that was the their so-called New York street. It was very urban on one side. And it kind of terminated at the railroad depot from Gone with the Wind. But that side of it was originally called Chicago Street. It was built for a movie called Roxy Hart, which was the origin of the play on Chicago. So that part was very urban, but then it got more and more rural as it moved across the lot. So for an episode for like City on the Edge of the Forever, they'd use the they'd use the very urban side. But uh, you know, it, if you look on uh, if you look on the internet, everyone likes to print the shot of William Shatner and um, Joan Collins walking by Floyd's Barber Shop, right. and they didn't even change the name. <laughs> it said Floyd's Barber Shop. Just because, once again, it's all—it was all artifice, and they figured, no, if if you're not looking at the actors, and it probably doesn't matter. And though the Andy Griffith people used to complain that Desi would never fix anything, if there was a hole in a wall, right. production would have to fix it. Right. So you know <laughs> that that way, Desi got the got the crew that that was that was paying him to use that lot yeah, to, to do the repairs on the set. So, you know, they probably didn't have a, a clean pane of glass that fit that window. So they probably had the Lee Floyd's barbershop um, sign intact. I love that crossover idea. I think that's amazing. I mean, you could have Don Knotts. He's just got like one bullet for his phaser. I mean. I think it's a great, I think it's, I think it's a great idea. I don't know why, you know, it, 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 it does make you think about, you know, about the, you know, the fact that these, these two shows were working more, you know, at, at the same time using yeah. the same sets. You know, you, you know, did they hang out with each other between takes? Did they, um, did you they like um, Andy Griffith and Shatner together? I mean, yeah. come on, the captain of the Salvage One and the captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ain't the Salvage One. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were one of a dwindling group of people that remember Salvage One. Uh, <laughs> Ever dwindling group. Um, of course, they also use the the main. Uh, uh, the town square and return of the archons and Miri uh, as well, which uh, and look, I don't think there's a better of all the Star Trek episodes. We really see the lot as well as in Miri, mm -hmm. yeah. which is gorgeously shot. Not, I don't love the episode, but I love it as a snapshot of 40 acres. Yeah. The, there seems to be more wide shots where they put the camera on a crane or they put it up higher they put it farther back. So you could, you know, you could, you could accomplish my dream of um, being able to see the set without the actor standing in front of them. Right. It's it shot very well. And, you know, you can see, you can see the, um, the um, Mayberry um, police station off, off on one side. 
So it's um you know it's uh, it, it's another interesting it's a really it's a really good episode for for looking at forty acres as kind of a snapshot of what that set looked like at that time. Yeah, and and um, so we we talked about the, the New York Street, um, the the Arabian Square, uh, Main Street. Did Star Trek use any other locations there that you're aware of? Um, like I said, they use they they use the um, the Arab Village a couple times. I can't think of anything beyond that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, where they um, where they needed to. Usually, when they went out, when they went on lo- on location, but wasn't forty acres. It was like Lake Sherwood, I think, or something like that. So, but yeah, they, they they never made it to the uh, uh, to the Gomer Pyle Quonset Hut. Uh, that would have been an interesting crossover episode too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, by the third season, the budget had been cut so much they only went on location once, which uh, out out to uh, what was it the the reservoir where they shot oh, Paradise yeah. Syndrome, right, Aaron? Uh, Darren? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and then um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, but uh, but those couple and in Bronson Caves was another staple of Star Trek locations at the time, yeah. which was also a Batman location. They used that in one of the movies too, didn't they? they Wasn't did. that the? Um... It's in uh, six for the yeah uh, the prison planet. I'm, I've always been a big believer in, uh, you probably figured this out, in places having their own identity and their own personality almost as much as the actors and actresses do. I remember reading ages ago, um, um, Gene Roddenberry saying that for him, the Enterprise was a, as much a character as any of the people because I, you know, he, he, he fought in World War II and their ship was like one of the, it was one of the gang. That was something that, the, something that the, they treasured. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was a part of the team. And that's what I've always thought about the Enterprise. When they, when they destroyed the Enterprise so cavalierly, you know, in one of the movies, I, 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 that bothered me more than when they killed off Spock. <laughs> then they did the same thing in one of the next generation movies as well. I was like, you can't destroy the Enterprise. Building another one doesn't mean it's going to be the same thing. And I, you know, that's, that's something on the new shows. You know, we, we talked about that, um, that, you know, I, 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 this is an anal thing, but it was kind of like they called Enterprise instead of the Enterprise. Yeah, and it, 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 and 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 that reflects the fact that there isn't this sense of the sense of the being as being unique. And you know, by calling it the Enterprise, it's kind of like there's this is something. One. There's yeah. only one. Yeah. This is something special. This is a character in our show, as opposed to oh, there's Reliant, there's Enterprise, there there's Constellation. It's just not the same. But. Uh, uh, we talked about Batman shot there, and the the famous Batcave was built on those stages. Um, and they, and also had, they also had an exterior uh, shot of them driving the Batmobile across the forty acres. Uh, I think it was one of the episodes with Shame. Uh, Cliff oh yeah, Fox. the Western Town. Uh, and when uh, when Shame, I think, uh, shoots the Batmobile, and it becomes a wireframe uh, Batmobile. That's uh, right there in in the middle of the Western Town. Yeah, see, see, there's there's all these little secret appearances that you can find. I think there was a, um, I think there was a Beverly Hillbillies episode where they ended up back there too, where they they end up where a movie studio ends up playing itself. Those are always mm-hmm. interesting because you get to see views of the sets that you don't usually get. So those oh, are those are the, episodes like that are really to be cherished. Well, there's that great uh, in Batman third season. Um, there's a scene where. Uh, Batman and Batgirl are captured right in front of the Inst building, the administration building. Right. And, uh, it all is shot like right there in front of, uh, uh, in front of, and it's like right on the lawn. Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's wild to, 
to watch that for anybody who kind of knows knows the history. And then Mission Impossible, another Deslu show, shot a bunch of stuff on the lot as well, didn't they? Yeah, they were there on and off. You know, whenever they could find a set that that they could use, they used the um, Hogan's Heroes uh, POW camp in one episode where it was supposed to be uh, like a prisoner of war camp down in some little banana Republic. Right. So once again, they could put the cameras farther back than they did when they were shooting at Hogan's heroes, because it didn't matter if you saw the palm trees in the background, right? And Hogan's heroes, they always had to put the camera up close. Cause if you got too far back, you, you'd catch a palm tree in Germany. <laughs> Take that Tom Cruise. So, palm trees uh, after buying the lines. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame that um, it's, it, it's a shame that um, Mission Impossible the movies have, have, haven't gotten over there as well. I always feel like that's a. I, I've always I, I always think that's a that that's a nice one. A remake shoots in the same stages or the same place that mm. the that the original shot. I always feel like it's some sort of an homage, even though it never is. It's just they're booking a soundstage, and that was the cheapest one that was available at the moment. But I've, I've always I've always felt that was um I've always thought thought that was interesting. Like I remember in um. Uh, Get Shorty, which was produced by MGM. They at the end of the movie, there's an aerial shot where the John Travolta comes out of a soundstage in Hollywood, and the camera pulls back, and it's a Sony lot, which was the old MGM studios. So mm-hmm. the MGM had to go back and rent their own facility, their, their former facility. And I always wondered if that was, if that was intentional, if that was some sort of an homage to their past. It probably wasn't. It was probably Sony was probably just the, the cheapest one that was available at the time. But it warmed my heart that there was an MGM movie shooting on the old MGM lot, even if it was inadvertent. Yeah. And that was a remarkable lot. I mean, people who go to Sony, they don't realize, again, they're watching, they're seeing the shell of, uh, of, of you know, and, and, and obviously it was falling apart, too. And then when Goober and Peters took over, they spent a lot of money. But it's, it's, I mean, you see glimmers of the past, but it's mostly new sound stages, new buildings, new administration. There's a great featurette on, I think it was the big parade where it's kind of a history of the MGM lot that has all this great archival footage of, of MGM. So what we're like, obviously back in the day, makeup, hair and makeup, costume, they would have these giant buildings and, a lot of the, the we didn't they didn't have uh, honey wagons or anything like that or star wagons. People would have a space on the lot in a building, which would be their changing room. What were the uh, below the lines facilities like at Forty Acres? Like what were the the other structures, the support buildings and things on that lot like? Not very good. I think everybody usually complained about it, just because once again, none of the landlords were were interested in building up the infrastructure so it really didn't exist there was just a couple restrooms on the on the entire 40 acres property yeah. and there was um well there was Bologna creek yeah there was always Bologna creek i remember i was on the set for one of the walton's reunion movies once and they were filming the entire cast was there filming in the original walton's house over at warner brothers and I, one of the actors walked up to the other they were, they'd been kids in the show but they were adults and one of them said where's the bathroom at and the other one said, just go around and you, you go behind the house. That's what we used to do. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, the infrastructure there was never very good. Everyone complained about the commissary and everybody complained about the food. They usually, when they were shooting in 40 acres, they, they had a shed that they would use as a temporary commissary. So they, they, they'd, let, they'd give people their, their, their shed on a shingle. They'd, pour, they'd get, drop it on their plate and give it to them. And so the extras would go and sit at the Arab in this Arab village. And um, I've got, I've seen, I, every time I've seen a picture of um, food being served at 40 acres, they, um, 
they're always sitting at the Arab village because their so-called commissary, which was basically just a shed with a hot plate in it, was was over there. So it's um, you know, it, 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 it was bad during the golden Hollywood era, and I think that just got worse and worse when Desi Arnaz started running the place because he didn't want once again he didn't want to put any money into it. What year was the uh, the forty acre back lot closed down? Um. It would have been the last productions that shot there would have been the late 1970s. Right. Um, and you because can see I a just want to back up for a second. Desilu, Steve, Desilu had, had sold it when they merged with Paramount to who? And then take us through those those years leading to its being. Uh, well, after Desilu, let's see. Um, there was a company with the most inspiring name I've ever heard. You're, you're all going to want to name a company this when I tell you what it is. There was a company that bought it called Perfect Film, Perfect Film and Chemicals. Yeah. yeah. It just they, like it makes you want to work for a company Paramount. with a name like that. Doesn't they it? bought it from Paramount after Paramount bought Desilu. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, what happened is um, Desi, Paramount bought the, um, uh, the physical, uh, they bought Desilu. And they they uh, they ended up buying the Desi Lou um, Nerve Center, which was next door to a Paramount anyway. So it was just a matter of taking a fence down, and they expanded their studio. Right. And um. And that's that's how Star Trek, of all things, fell into their lap. You know, they 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 Paramount. It's kind of one of the crown jewels in their in, in their hat these days. But it, it, well, it was Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty yeah. good Mission deal, Impossible. huh? Yeah. Star Trek and Mission Impossible, not bad. Yeah, yeah. Lucy knew what she was doing. Yeah, she, you know, she, I'm sure, I think she was the only one that would give Star Trek a spin at the wheel because it was real, it was obviously very expensive. So she would, she, you know, she was, a, she was one smart bookie. And well, they uh, do so, say print the legend, don't they, Steve? So it's hard to parse what was true about Lucy believing in Star Trek with the legend. You know, clearly she, she, you know, believed in, in, in doing, going ahead with the show because it was a very expensive show. But, you know, it's kind of like the print the legend now where it's like Star Trek wouldn't have happened without Lucy. And then she, you know, insisted they make the pilot regardless. And, you know, and then when they off the second pilot, so we, you know, we just don't know, do we? Yeah, let's let's agree to print the legend in this case. Losing <laughs> <laughs> the benefit of the doubt and say that she was some sage seer who could see into the future and realize it <laughs> at some point. One would like to That's think. nice to believe. How did they separate the responsibilities, um, De- uh, uh, Lucy and Desi? I mean, especially once the divorce happened. Um, they apparently remained fairly amenable for the rest of their lives. Um Lucy was never particularly interested in the business sense, and Desi actually turned out to be really good at that sort of thing. Mm. I don't think anybody expected that the, you know this 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 um, comic Cuban Cuban band leader uh, could be good at business, but you know he made he turned you know he turned Desi Lou into one of the largest producers of television in the world. Yeah. And you know, one time they operated three separate studios in Hollywood in Los and Culver City. Isn't the famous story that he was the one who insisted on filming Lucy on film and that led to the syndication business because they were able to show them. They, it wasn't kinescopes anymore. They actually were able to repeat the episodes because they weren't filming them on uh, live, live or, or on tape. Yeah, well, at the time, most you know, most television came out of New York, so the only way you could see it on the West Coast was through a telescope or some sort of a, 
a, a cross country hookup or something like that. And yeah, you know, he gets the once again. Let's print the legend, but he gets the credit for 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 you know for basically inventing the format that sitcoms still follow today. Right. You know, where they they shoot yeah, on. Don't say they shoot on film, but they shoot on observable media. And you know, that's that's uh, we all we all have Desi to thank for that. That crazy Cuban. I want to circle back to what Darren asked, which is it's kind of like the end of Bunker Hill, which was this amazing part of Los Angeles with these incredible buildings and this bustling metropolis. And then slowly it died to death of a thousand cuts until it was no more and replaced by office buildings. And even the hill on which Bunker Hill was on was taken, was destroyed. So um, I, I, I wonder if you could take us through those last few sad years of 40 acres is it's falling apart. I know they always had a vermin problem, so I, I can't imagine that got any better. I mean, that was another thing Roddenberry used to complain about with the vermin on the sets. And he wasn't talking about the actors. <laughs> well, you may have been, but uh, <laughs> we're the writers. Um, yeah, I think, you know, once when there was a lot of production going on, they could always palm the repairs off on the, um, uh, on, you know, on, on whoever was using the sets. But like with Desi, when, when Desi left, uh, a bunch of um, perfect film and chemical came in and, um, you know, they didn't have the contacts and they didn't have the, the, they weren't as business savvy about how the entertainment industry works. So they ended up selling the company. Um, the only interesting person that came in in the last couple decades of the, of 40 acres was Grant Tinker, who was, um, Mary Tyler Moore's husband. He was like the only creative executive. And I think at the time people thought he'd be like another David Selznick or another Desi Arnaz, if you want to go there. But his, the silver, you know, everything he touched turned to gold until he bought Culver Studios. And after that, nothing he did went right. He, 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 the only show he had that was a hit, he hated it personally, but it was a big success was Baywatch. And that didn't become a success until after he sold it and it went into first round syndication. So for our audience that doesn't know Grant Tinker, he was part of MTM, which was responsible for such amazing shows as St. Elsewhere, Remington Steel, um, Hill Street was MTM, wasn't it? Uh, no, it wasn't. Hill Street wasn't, but um, just a succession. Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah, but it was a succession of incredible, you know, critically acclaimed. Uh, television series, but so you said yeah, that when he got his own studio, and then it all went to pot. Right, God, Baywatch was the antithesis of everything he did. Yeah, it kind of is, and I don't think he was very happy with. It. I think it only ran under his banner for the first season, and they canceled it. And right. <laughs> then it went on to become a you know it wouldn't stay dead, so it became a big success. Did it so, shoot? Did, I mean, not the beach, but did the standing sets shoot um, at Forty Acres? You know. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, when I went through the production records, I tried and tried to find out if I, I'd like to say they did just yeah. because it's, you know, it's one more feather in the cap for the place, but I don't think so. Mm. So it, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I don't know if they, um, uh, let's, let's just, let's just, let's just leave a question mark covering over that one. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to comment for the record on that. I don't know. Yeah, sure. But it's it's funny in in the eighties the the Culver Studios themselves uh, was very popular uh, to Steven Spielberg because he shot uh, at least two movies there he shot E T there shot E T there yeah and he shot Hook there um, so it's it's pretty amazing 
that uh, apparently he wanted to sort of be out of the range of a, you know, quote unquote, regular studio and uh, keep his production a little more uh, uh, hidden away. That's always been another asset that Culver Studios and 40 Acres had is because there wasn't, except when Selznick was there and the mill was there before that, the there big boss was there. Place. It was a rental lot. Yes. So, you, know, mm-hmm. you could get away from the bosses. The producer couldn't walk from his office down to the soundstage and annoy everybody. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was, it was a good it was a good place to get away. I remember I, I talked to Ron Howard about 40 acres and he said it was wonderful because they, you know, they'd be, they'd be in the sound stages for like three days a week. And for the last two, they'd, they'd go out to 40 acres. And he said, he'd ride his bicycle around the place. And he said, like the cast, you could just tell the tension. There was less, the cast was less tense whenever they, they, they weren't under the nose of the, uh, you know, of the executives. Right. They didn't so, want to drive from Hollywood acres, to Culver city, especially yeah, back who then. Would? Grow up and it was, <laughs> for a, a TV show or a movie to be shot because it was kind of away from the glare of the spotlight. No, that's, that's, that's so interesting. And I love what you said in your book um, about E.T., that they had wanted to shoot in Utah, um, and then they decided to shoot the home of the family um, at uh, 40 Acres, So, and then they were able to then go shoot all the wood scenes up north uh, because they had saved some money by shooting the house here. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out really well. It's hard, you know. I, I'm a big advocate for, I, you know. I think everything should be shot within the 30 miles zone. If I have my way, that's you know. I'm, anytime, anytime, anything goes anywhere on location, I feel like it's it's a loss. Not just to you know, not just the local crews, but just to the to the finished product. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that a movie looks better and sounds better when it comes out of Hollywood. Well, better crews. They're used to you know. Yeah, we've got the best crews in the world here, obviously. That was a while ago when I used to shoot movies here. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting it's because so uh, it was so short-sighted to destroy all these, whether it be Fox selling off half their back lot or 40 acres, because now they can't build new stages fast enough. Santa yeah. Clarita is rebuilding a bunch of stuff. And, yeah, they're tearing um, the Warner Brothers ranch down as we speak, which has had you know, wonderful sets on it for since the early 30s. What's going up there? Sound stages, wall to wall sound stages, mm. and you know, I mean, I think that that's great, uh, but it's I think it's a horrible loss to American popular culture that they're tearing down the house, the, the you know, the, the the from the house from Bewitched and the house from My Dream of Jeannie and the house from the Weapon, Partridge Family, Bruce you know, Gibson fought Gary Busey yeah, yeah, on the, the lawn the, with the sprinkler going. Plus, it, yeah. it's completely against the entire reason that they set up the movie business here anyway because of the weather so that they could shoot outside and also get away from Edison's patents. But that's, yeah, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Yeah. It's all, it's all, like I said, it's, it's the soapbox that I spend way too much time standing and screaming from because no, because nobody listens to me anyway. So, but I may, um, you know, I just think that it's, you know, there's a, if you saw the um, movie, the T, the series on uh, WandaVision, they shot on that street where all these sitcoms have been shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a certain resonance and richness to that because that's where all these classic sitcoms really were shot was on this street. Yep. And, you know, they probably made this, Warner Brothers probably made the upkeep on those sets up for an entire year just off that one project, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet they're still tearing it. They're still tearing, tearing it down. They're tearing it down. They're building yeah. more sound stages. Yeah. yeah. It's like the whole myth about 
clueless, soulless studio executives is really true. They're, everybody realizes how valuable these, this sort of thing is, except for the people that you know can push the button and have it destroyed without even it's, thinking about it. It's all okay. They saved the Friends fountain. Yes, the Friends fountain is intact, so <laughs> the world is a better place for that. So. Most of these studios had these annexes, like Fox had Fox Ranch and Paramount, you know, where, where they, how many of these still exist? You said Warner Brothers is tearing down, you know, to build sound stages now. Does the Fox where they shot Planet of the Apes, does that still exist? It's a state park. Yeah. Mm. They, in fact, MASH was shooting there still when the, when the, um, when Fox sold the land of the state. Right. And they had to carve out an agreement that MASH could continue to shoot there uh, as long as it was on the air. And, you know, they still occasionally, like the, the state is willing to rent the property out. So occasionally there's still production that goes on up there, but it's, um, you know, wouldn't it have been fun to walk through the village from planet of the apes oh my when God. that was there? I mean, could you imagine what that would be like, yeah. you know, that, that'd be like walking. I mean, that'd be like walking onto the, onto the set for star Trek or something for me. That would be amazing. Oh. I had a really good friend. I should mention him. Um, uh, Billy Blackburn, who was on sure. all three seasons of the original series. And he took super eight movies of these things. And I was, I've been talking about how these, how effective, how, how I'm affected by these sets. But in one of his movies, he's standing on, um, um, stage 31 at Paramount where they had the bridge for the enterprise with his camera. And then he walks around and you can see the flats and the two by fours holding those walls up. And it's profound and affecting. It, like you look at this and I, you, you, it's fascinating. But you almost want to cry. You almost don't want to see the see that the the, uh, the bridge of the Enterprise was that insubstantial. Those films are great. That are, they put them on the Blu-rays. Yeah, he finally so great Paramount finally gave those. him a big check. I'm glad they did. Because, yeah. um, but I used to go over to his house and he'd have junk from Star Trek sitting around on, in, in the living room. I'd love to know what happened to it. <laughs> Probably sold at a convention, but it's. Uh, I mean, that, that is such a great snapshot of history too. those films, you know, of, of specifically of Star Trek. I mean, some of the, I, I feel like, uh, and it's been a long time since I watched them. I feel like there might've been him shooting some stuff at Vasquez rocks up in, um, yeah, uh, one of their location trips. I don't know if it was Vasquez. It was like, uh, it was, it was a lake somewhere. I remember, I remember, I remember he shot, was it the episode where there was the, the native American type alien yeah, syndrome? Yeah. I don't know if all of that showed up on, like, I used to go over to his house and he'd like, you know, he, he literally like set up the projector and I'd, wa I'd watch these things with him. It was so nice when Paramount let him do an audio commentary for these movies. It was, yeah. it kind of brings Billy back. It's, 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 I'm so happy that they finally came to terms on that. No, that was great. There was, you know, all this Star Trek footage for a long time that was floating around that finally started to show up because it was the same thing with all Gene Ronbray's outtakes that, uh, had only been rumored to exist for a long time. And then, you know, Paramount finally put up the money so that they could release the Roddenberry vault, which is also a wonderful artifact of that time. Uh, you know, but that was mostly outtakes and extended scenes and deleted scenes as opposed to sort of behind the scenes. But that's, that's a really wonderful set as well. But remembering, remembering stuff like this and, and, uh, locations and sets that are long gone now is, uh, is, uh, you know, very bittersweet because uh, all of those memories are in the shows that we loved and in the movies that we've watched. But they are all phantoms now, and they don't exist. 
And it's uh, it's kind of neat to sort of remember and look at photos and and uh, and read memories of these things uh, because it is a it is a part of at least Hollywood history. And uh, it's something that I I've always been interested in when I first moved here in '85, and everything was almost all gone by the time I got here. Yeah, it's it's the coin of phrase. It's, it's most of it is gone with the wind, though, and it is it is sad. I I remember when I tried to, when I got my first book published. It was my um about the MGM backlot. It took it took myself and I had a couple collaborators. It took us almost a decade to find a publisher that would, that would publish this because they kept saying, so you want to write this book kind of like a guidebook. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. Exactly. It's like a guidebook of what it would be like to wander around an MGM. Just like I, I fantasized about when I was nine years old yeah. and they were like, so wait a minute, wait, hold on. You want to write a guidebook about a place that people can't go to that doesn't exist anymore. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd be thrown out, I'd be thrown out in the hallway and the door would be slammed so fast. So it took, it took years to find, to find a, a publisher that would agree to let me do something like this. I wanted, you know, I wanted to show maps. I, you know, I, I've kind of got it. I have a, a big fat three ring binder of like maps of all the Hollywood studios. Right. I wanted to publish these maps, maps and put little numbers on them saying, if you walk left to number nine, you'd see this. And if you turn right, you go past the prop department and you'd find yourself on, you know, on the uh, on Brooklyn Street or something like that. And I found yeah. out, thought that was so fascinating. And I'm glad the book is a success because it's allowed me to write other books about other studios. It's a great book, by the way. I love I love MGM, Hollywood's Grace Backlot. That's a terrific book. Well, give it a year. When, uh, you know, you got Vision Pro out and you do an entire like augmented reality program where you can walk onto the lots and do a tour of versions of those lots that only exist like in your mind, but used to exist. Like you literally could look over at number nine and kind of see what was there. That but it won't have the pigeons. You won't have the pigeons. Although, you know what? If like they managed to do it in 4D. You know, you actually like get that virtual pigeon shit on you. I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> and the rats. It's but you see, fun. to take your concept a step farther, that's how they're really going to be making movies. They won't have to build any of these sets. They can, you know, they it, it can all be created inside a you know a huge hard drive somewhere. I think they're hoping that. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what they wanted to. I gotta ask you, Steve, to to kind of wrap up. But um, we've had this conversation before. What is the most magical um, uh, lot that still exists? And I think we came to the decision it's Paramount. Do you, do you have, uh, because, you know, you can still feel like it's Sunset Boulevard. There's so much, partially because they were cheap, so much of the old stuff is still there, you know, as opposed to a lot like MGM where it's been, most of it has been changed so dramatically. Even though you can find little bits and, you know, nooks and crannies of the old days. What what for you is uh, you know and I can't give it to Fox as much as I love the Fox lot just because so much of it is gone. But what do you uh, is the greatest remaining lot that is like that magical lot? Well, Paramount is up there. If I had to choose one, I'd probably have to say Warner Brothers mm. because yeah, all the cliches come true there. Right. It feels exactly like it should feel like when you're walking around a movie studio, you know, and if they've still got a huge property department with eye with row upon rows of brick and brack that you've seen in a thousand movies. And you can go to the commissary and you can literally see a guy dressed like a, a cowboy eating lunch with a guy dressed like an Indian. Mm. And it's still got a huge backlot with the acres of sets yeah. standing on it. 
So it, it just, it kind of feels like how you would imagine a movie studio would, would have felt like if you walked through those gates, you know, when Humphrey Bogart was making movies there with Lauren Bacall or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I mean so much of there. the old gangster street is still exactly the same. You can watch Public Enemy or, you know, Little Seas, uh, Public Enemy or like Roaring Twenties and see exactly the same buildings. Yeah, exactly. I, I used to, I used to have to have fights when I used to be an archivist there and I'd have fights with soulless studio executives, right? They'd be like, they'd be like, well, we need, we need to knock this wall down. And like, I can't, Jim, you can't knock this wall down. Jimmy Cagney was machine gunned on that wall in front of that wall three times or something like that. And they just didn't get it. You know, it's, it's in some ways, it's not fair asking a movie studio executive to understand this sort of thing, because these are movies that, you know, for, for most of them, you know, a lot of people that are working in the entertainment industry aren't really interested in it. They want to, you know, they, they're interested in dating actresses and they're interested in making a lot of money and having a big house with a big swimming pool in Beverly Hills, but the product themselves is completely beyond them. So, you know, it's, it's hard to ask. It, 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 it's hard to ask a donkey to behave like a like like a racehorse because at the end of the day it's still a donkey and you know a lot of the studio executives are they just don't understand and no matter how I, I argue with them till that they were blue in the face and they still didn't understand mm -hmm. they were like well this Jimmy Cagney person isn't making a movie there now right so we why do we need to save the wall that he was machine gun in front of and you know you realize they had. They had no idea who Jimmy Cagney even was. Yeah. And these are the people that are deciding what what the world gets to watch. People talk about how, you know, how how bad our movies are. I'd say they're awfully good considering the, you know, the people that have the power to greenlight them in many cases. <laughs> Ashley, you want to see you, you yeah, yes, yes, I mean I mean, I, I guess other than the taco thing, like I, I agree with you about Warner Brothers. Um I've always like that place has ha has a very special plays in my heart and um because of you know uh shooting there on uh, one of the great experiences of my life on uh on terminator but um my very first experience truly being on a lot and truly being taken through a lot like i'd been on the paramount lot for various reasons and 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 been to the various lots for meetings but i will never forget circa 2003 john schneider uh you know bo duke himself also Pa Kent, um, taking me around and showing me Hazard County and <laughs> saying, you know, here's a gazebo like where we got married. And that like the General Lee used to come around that corner and that's where the garage was and that's where Boss Hogg was. And I was thinking, but that's also the stairs that Batman used to run up. And <laughs> just, you know, getting that sense of history and yeah. being able to picture all of those things he was talking about being presented by the man himself. It was all very like, the cognitive dissonance was real, um, but at the same time, it was it was also magical. Um, you know, we're realizing when you're shooting there that, like, oh yeah, you know, it's like I I know what that that building is, and I've seen it a million times, and now it's a gun shop, and the Terminator is going inside. You know what I'm saying? It just it it messes with your head, like as a as a creative professional. But the thing that really jumps out at me, you know, as you're as you're talking, is it's it's such a weird business that we're in. It's such a weird art that we that we do because we, when we build these sets, when we create these props, we're not really as much as we want to turn them into monuments. They're ephemera, right? It's like they are ultimately a, a piece of art. They contribute to an illusion that generates something that's like art. They're like you know, the the dots 
in a painting, like in an impressionist painting that add up to something else. And, you know, I, what I try to get my head around is like, you know, because I had this very visceral reaction to the story of, you know, all of those 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 pieces from the Gone with the Wind sets being destroyed and like a part of me just like that. But then I think, you know, where does it all go? And, you know, if we tried to preserve it all, like what would be left? If the, if the bridge of the original Enterprise still stood, and God, I wish it did, let me just tell you. You know, it's what happens next? You know, where does it all go? So it's such an interesting problem to have, I think. I mean, especially is why it's very fascinating for me to to listen to you because, you know, you are a historian and an archaeologist who is uh, preserving in your own way a thing that is not designed to be preserved other than how it is um, presented on film. It's just that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it is. It is ephemera, and it is. It isn't designed to last. We, you know, well, like uh, at Warner Brothers, they have they, they saved like bat suits going back to um, Michael Keaton, but you know they're made of like foam latex and like soft right. rubber. So after a few years, you know, That's air true. gets to these things and they just start to crumble. Yeah. And you, you know, we put them in display cases, and uh, you know, there'd be a after a while there'd be a little pile of black residue you know standing next you know next to his boots of pieces falling off these costumes because you know they weren't intended to last for 50 years they were intended to last for a few minutes you know for one take and then be stripped off and replaced by a new by a new piece right, right. and you know the sets are the same way and they're designed in the you know they're, they're not they weren't designed to last as long as the pyramids even if they even if the set that they were building was a pyramid right <laughs> and michael Keaton <laughs> ain't doing too good either so so it's you know you you, you you are asked you are asking more of them than than they than they were intended to do. Yeah. And by the way, I think we'd be remiss, even though it's been turned into a theme park for all intents and purposes. Universal is still a pretty amazing mm-hmm. lot too. Yeah, Universal. Yeah. Um, it's wonderful that they've um, you know they, they found a way to monetize the you know their acres and acres and acres of backlot sets by driving tour trams through them. So God bless them. Yeah. You know, I think that's great, and it's you know. That's another one of these places where you can, you can, you know, if you get to walk around there, especially if there's not a tour bus going by, it's, you know, you can, you, you can hear the rustling of the, of, of the ghosts once again. Yeah, it's, you absolutely. know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of history and a lot of, um, a, a lot of, a lot of lore that I loved it off those walls there in the eighties when it was still like, it, it was less about the, you know, the entertainment of the theme park. It was less Disney and it was more like you would see the discarded, relics of different like you could still see the buck rogers starfighter just sitting rusting in the rain outside and they would all that you see it was everything wasn't there for the presentation a lot of it was really authentic you know over time it's become less and less authentic because it's all about you know selling the uh you know the the theme park attraction but it's still pretty much you really get it's not like disney in florida where it's like you really get to see a, a studio in action, and obviously, it's a pretty remarkable uh, uh, studio. I was going to say, I've never understood people who would like say, "Oh, well, I don't need to go to Universal Studios here because I did. I saw the one in Florida." I'm like, it's not the same. You know, they, when they first opened that park, they built a replica of the Psycho House. Yeah. that people would take pictures of. <laughs> so they were taking pictures of a replica of a house that's in California that isn't real to begin with. Yeah. So it's a copy, <laughs> like a third generation Xerox. Thank God the, 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 the theme park, right? 
because the Bates Motel and 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 the, and the the house would would have been lo- raised long ago if it wasn't for Universal well, theme park. Well, the secret is they were raised, and those are replicas. But that's that's not. Oh, it. is that right? I didn't know that. It's been moved. I, I, I well, think the, it's mo- the motel partially. section. The motel section is a replica. Yeah, that's definitely a replica. Um, but you know, as soon as they realize that their uh, their parking uh, cost every day made more per year than their movies did. The all bets were off, mm. you know, cause it, it, it's crazy. And it, it's all, all the movies are designed to bring people into the theme park and pay for parking. <laughs> well, yeah. if only 40 acres had thought of that before. Right. It was torn down. Yeah. Like I said, you know, it's, it's funny. There's a, um, there's an industrial site there and some big warehouses and occasionally they'll shoot TV uh, series inside these big warehouses right? where 40 acres was at. And, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes wonder if like, you know, if there's anybody in there that knows that that's where, you know, that, that's where Mayberry and Tara used to be. And if they the hate track is now there are a bunch of warehouses where people tend to shoot indies and smaller things. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and even some TV stuff has been shot all in the Hayden track in these old warehouses, not so old warehouses down there. But, uh, and then, and in Culver stages, like you said, it was a rental facility until Amazon leased all the space. I mean, I think agents of shield shot there and a bunch of other places. Yeah, Sony shows. owned it for a few years, yeah. and they basically just, you know, because they had a big studio up the street, they basically just used it as a, as a rental lot. So, you know, it's that identity has kind of followed the property through its entire life. It's it's always been a, a haven for misfits and indies and rental films and, you know, kind of slightly shady studio projects that, you know, they couldn't afford to shoot in, in their own lot. So they, they rent stages or they rent back lot space over there. So, so, you know, it was always a little bit, a little bit edgy. Uh, there's a great story I, I found in my book that about somebody that was, um, a homeless kid that was living in the sets mm. and he used to apparently, apparently the, um, the security came by and shot him, um, when they found him there and, um, like on film they took him to the hospital and they were afraid he was going to die. And he did. I never found out what happened. There was one news mm-hmm. news article about it. And I can never, I can never find the follow up. I even did, I did name searches. I thought about checking local hospitals to find out what happened to this person. But this was someone who was literally living on a back lot. Wow. Uh, there's I'm a movie mad. called the Phantom of Hollywood about a, about yeah. a masked actor that's, um, they're tearing down his back lot. So he starts killing the studio executives. And this guy was kind of like the actual Phantom of, of Hollywood because he was, he was like a ghost. He was like a wraith. Kind and of drifting around in these sets at night. And that boy's name was Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, this this was uh this was so terrific. As, you know, thank you, Stephen. And um we appreciate you sharing all your thoughts about this and obviously written some great books that hopefully people can seek out for more um you know, more information about all these great lots that you've covered. You've really run the gamut on so many of the great Hollywood studios and you're finishing a new book. Can you talk about that at all? Um, I've got a, I just turned in the manuscript for a new book about Bison Archives, which is um, I've used to get photos from for most of my books. And, and um, it's an archive that is utilized by the Hollywood studios themselves Right. Um, the studios don't, even if they own the copyright on a photo, for example, they don't always have a copy of the photo lying around. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, 
I, when I was working at Warner Brothers, I needed a photo. There was a there was a, a labor um, there was a strike that went on there where the uh, protesters turned over a car in the 1940s, and somebody wanted it for some reason, and the studio didn't have a copy of it. And they said, "Well, call Bison Archives; they're going to have a copy of it." So it, it it was kind of strange being Warner Brothers and having the corporate might of Warner Brothers and having to call an outside vendor for our own photo that we own the copyright to to get wow. a copy of it. And he, 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 they managed to make a, uh, a successful business saving stuff the studios don't want to save or aren't, aren't smart enough to be able to save. And this wasn't and, just the Kokorian days of MGM. Every, all the studios were like this, throwing out their yeah, stuff for not saving it. Stuff. Stuff and, and Bison Archives was there to salvage a lot of it, mm-hmm. fortunately. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice to make a book just about this archive and all these photos that he has that no one else had? Oh, that's great. So that's, that's, that's what this book's going to be. So it's, I'm, I'm well, we look forward to reading it. When's it going to be out, Stephen? Do you know, or? Uh, I don't have a publication date. I just turned in the manuscript. So oh, it'll okay. probably, uh, maybe Christmas time, I suspect. Great. Maybe that might be a fair. Cool. I think it's going to be called Treasures from the Bison Archive or something like that. So nice. look for great. it. Well, look, thank you for this walk down memory lane. It's so great. It's such a interesting an obscure piece of Hollywood history that a lot of people don't know. It's interesting and obscure. Um, then uh, it's probably something I'm going to be interested in. <laughs> I, um, your your um, your viewers would probably particularly appreciate my Paramount book. I've got a lot of great stories about the. Um, I've got I've got most of the stages that all the different iterations of Trek shot in listed. If you ever wanted to know what stage the um, different sets for different series were at, most of that's in there. And I, I marked times where they utilized the back lot and the big B tank with the um, with the painted backdrop of the sky on it. Uh, Trek used that several times, and stories about the um, the fire that burned down part of their back lot where the Star Trek cast came out of their stage and helped. That was help another print the legend, wasn't it, Stephen? About yeah, possibly. Uh, Shatner saving. The stage is single-handedly. We stage for entertainment tonight with the fire hose after the fire had already been put out. <laughs> it's funny in his book, he mentions that um, the Big B sky, nobody knew it was there. They'd forgotten that it was there, and no one had used it in decades. And um, which was ridiculous since he'd used it in Trek a couple times before that, and he also shot a TV series called Barbary Coast where they used it as well. So he would have been very aware of that set being out there. And yet in his book, he goes on and on about how they rediscovered at the studio and forgotten they had this set rusting away in the back lot. Wow. My, my favorite story is actually about the tank, which is used as a parking lot at Paramount for so many years, which they used in Star Trek Four as the, you know, where the ship crash lands with the whales yeah. and that they couldn't figure out how to flood it because the guy who was responsible for the, the I guess the, the pipes and the, and, and the, had no had retired and they had to bring him out of retirement in order to figure out actually how to activate the pipes to flood the tank again. Yeah, that's where um the mill part of the Red Sea for the Ten Commandments. It's also uh, it's I also it God. Yeah. But it's funny the <laughs> mill made mill. that movie twice. So God <laughs> only did it once, the mill part of the Red Sea twice. He got he's got <laughs> <laughs> that's also where um um, the Gilligan's Island cast was rescued, and a reunion movie was in that tank. So um, you've got the you've got the Red Sea and the uh, and Gilligan's Island, and literally in the same place, and Star Trek and a bunch of whales. So yeah, and then later they used it for Clear and Present Danger, a uh, Tom Clancy movie, I believe, or Patriot Games. One, I think it was Clear and Present yeah, Danger. Yeah, it was one of them. That, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm really thankful that it's still out there. I'm sure some executives thought that that that, that could be a, a terrific 
private parking lot just for his car, but it's, <laughs> it's still there, knock wood. That's another sad tradition that's gone by the wayside. Star Trek for so many years shot on the same sets. You know, you, you had the Desilu sets and motion picture, uh, uh, and, and then Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, those, those you know, and, and then with the new shows, they all shoot in Toronto and, yeah. uh, and, and, and Santa Clarita. But the, the tradition of shooting it on the Paramount lot is gone. Yeah, that's a pet peeve of mine. I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of upset about that. That, um, you know, they were always done in house, literally in the house. I remember mm -hmm. a uh, Siskel and Ebert show once where they were reviewing a Star Trek movie and they mentioned what it must be like to be Shatner and Nimoy driving through the Paramount gates, you know, 30 years after the first time they played these parts right. to shoot these movies. And that was literally what happened. Imagine what it must have been like for them to work at the same place. You know, actors are gypsies. And yet they spent 50 years of their career, you know, driving through those gates. Paramount. And like you said, that tradition has more or less been lost now. And know, I mean, it was really, truly that, you know, past the Zucar building, you had Star Trek Alley. And for a long, long time, you had Next Generation on one side and then Deep Space Nine and then Voyager and Deep Space Nine and then Enterprise. And it was like all these sound stages were Star Trek. And of course, yep. Planet Hell um, also and it just, there was something, it felt like that was part of the DNA of Paramount and that's all gotten lost. Yeah, they've just, they, they went where the, you know, they went where it's cheapest and where the money is, unfortunately. I remember I I, I pitched some um, ideas to a producer for Deep Space Nine once and they gave me a Bible, you know, the, so, you know just so you could keep track of who the characters were and everything. Apparently, they give to respective writers, and there was a line. There was a bit in there where they had actually said, "You know, um, you know, Star Trek. This has been the, Paramount has been the home of Star Trek for thirty years at that point already, and that um, all these things were developed in house, and they were all and they were all shot on the lot. They were proud of it. They were proud enough. They were proud enough of that to put it in the Bible mm -hmm. for the show. Yeah, and that's you know, interesting. It's although um, not quite true in a sense because. It you know it wasn't Paramount uh, the original Star Trek it was the RKO side of the uh, of, of 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 the Berlin Wall that separated Desilu from Paramount and then uh, eventually you know in '68 when Paramount buys Desilu they tore down that wall and and then it was part of Paramount but it it didn't start that way yeah it didn't start that well it was physically the same place. Yeah. But it was, um, you know, it did have, a, there was a different name on the water tower over there at that point. <laughs> but yeah. It's like, it's like my pet peeve. Legends. When, when your old former studio, Warner Brothers, starts talking about their 100th anniversary and, and shows all these MGM movies. Yeah, that just, that <laughs> that just drives me to distraction. Yeah. And once again, I could just see people there having the conversation saying, uh, and you know, trying to tell the studio executives, you can't use the Wizard of Oz to represent Warner Brothers, and they're like, "Why not? We own it." And that was that'd be the only thing they'd see. So you know, Warner sure Brothers really gone with the wind. Yes, now they because <laughs> they own the, That means they made it. Yeah, oh, but once again, they don't understand. It's like you're you're trying to you're trying to ask them to you know to comprehend something that they could care less about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really informative and a lot of fun. And uh, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun talking um, a little bit of track with you guys.
Absolutely. Thanks Take so care. Much. Good luck with the new book. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. much. Hey, well, I'm ready to open the 50 acre back lot. I, I, you know why? It's it'll be even better more. because it's 10 acres more. <laughs> no. like this one goes to 50 acres. Mark, you, right. you, you kept saying that the 40 acre back lot uh, as if it was the studio. It wasn't the studio. It was the back lot. But, you know, it, it's fine, and it's the same thing. But the, what? The, what are the you Culver, talking about? The Culver stages were not part of the 40 acres. No, I know, but they were adjacent. They're, they're adjacent. They're 40-acre yeah. adjacent. Yeah, uh, and, and, and obviously the, um, were they green? the administration building was part of the 40 acres back lot. No. The, the, the Selznick building. No. No, the, the 40 acres were the separate piece of Behind land. it. Behind it, yeah. Yeah. But you had the building at fronting on Culver Boulevard, fronting the studio. Same, the same, the same street that MGM was on. Now Sony. Well, that's right, Washington and Ince. I know this, this. This, you know, we didn't talk about this. It stretched all the way to the Bologna Creek and Hagera Street. Yeah. I mean, this was this was enormous. I mean, maybe on social we could mock up, we could show you on a map. You know what it was like then versus now. Yeah, just now how massive this, 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 this. Uh, you know, the stage this was. Um, it, well, was it was pretty. Acres. It was forty acres. Forty yeah. acres is a lot. Forty acres, no mules, but forty acres, and uh, really some great stories from Steve. I have to it's say, it's great. It's great, uh, and I, I've yeah. always been fascinated with this, and uh, you know, I've looked at a ton of the pictures taken during the day. And it was so sad that I couldn't see it. You know, uh, me too. I wish, I wish I could have been there. Yeah. You know, and I always, I'm like I said, you know, recently been picketing at Amazon and, uh, uh, and, uh, being, uh, you know, I, I eat in Culver City. I just went to see Mission Impossible in Culver City, uh, at the Culver Theaters. I mean, every, I cannot walk by Trader Shop at Trader Joe's. I cannot, um, Every time I walk by there, I think about it's sort of uh, that Sarapedon, all our yesterdays, if only. Sarapedon? You mean Sarapedon? I, I think I dated her in college. Sarapedon. It's in Raleigh. <laughs> it's in Raleigh. <laughs> 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 the one time you say it right, you screw up the joke. No, what's the yeah, that's right. That's right. With Pete with Pete Pop Whistle. I got to say, this is only a taste of the kind of stuff we're going to explore in our uh, our film about the uh, locations of, of, of Hollywood and um, of Star Trek. And I'm so yeah. excited, you know, to, to visit things like Vasquez Rocks and Bronson Canyon and uh, Gold Gate Park. places you've never heard of. Yeah, there's That's a bunch right. of places you've never heard of that Star Trek filmed. Um and hopefully I, you know, it won't turn into a found footage horror film somewhere down the, the Well, road. that could happen because if we have to hike to surprise. some of these locations, it could you could very well see me tumble down the tumbling <laughs> tumbleweeds. I'm not very good on those, you know. Oh, tumbling down. Chased by a scooter. Yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> I, I know. I, I'll roll down the hill. There will be a scooter looming over me. This is what you get for making fun of people who drive scooters. Is this your homework, Larry? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'll destroy your car. <laughs> but, uh, oh yeah, my I'm, God. I'm very excited about our Kickstarter and I, I wanted to I wanted to succeed immediately because I want to go do this thing. Oh yeah, no I, I, I do too. I mean, this is 
you know, people say, why are you guys, you're all very successful industry professionals. Why are you doing a Kickstarter? It's because this is the only way for us to, to do something on this subject and not have it be ruined by notes. Like, oh, well, you know, you got to really focus on the stars and you got to focus on the Star Trek. You know, we want to talk, you know, part of this is going to be curb your enthusiasm. It's following us around, you know, as we, you know, we go to these locations. These places that we've never been to. And get into no. hijinks. And we get lost. Lots of shenanigans going on. Yeah. yeah, hijinks and shenanigans for sure. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, we will dive into the episodes. But I think that to tell to do this the way we want, we need to have the autonomy to do it the way we want to do it. And, uh, you know, that's how I did 1982. And I think it turned out pretty damn well. And that's how we want to do this uh this documentary about um, the great locations of Star Trek. And it won't just be DOS. Um, we're going to be dealing with Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, uh, Star Trek Picard Season 3. We're going to go to Lower Decks locations. Anything Lower Decks locations, Canada. which is a uh, sketching table. In, um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, I, I told you, I, you know, Ashley told me, uh, he said, you really got to watch this Lower Decks because it's really good. And you know, I for a long time I was like, ah, I don't know, I don't like, it. I don't want to watch it. But I watched it, and I thought it was really good. So thank you, Ashley. I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. What have you done with Mark? No, I'm just Very saying. Deep. Look, I'm just saying. You, although they don't call it the Enterprise either, so that disturbs me. That's true. On the other I, hand, know, it's like the Cerritos doesn't quite have the same ring to it. So maybe it's okay because it's like, you know, it could be the Cerritos Auto Center to like pull, you know, references yeah, from Pomona. It's the USS Pomona. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's, that's Tango uh, it's Pomona. unexpectedly great. Um, yeah, Darren's shaking his head. You can't see this on audio, but Darren, Darren's checked out. Darren's had enough of this conversation. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, See, this is bad. Just wait until about? we're shooting the documentary. Oh, we're, it'll be bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're gonna have we're gonna have great guests. We're gonna have great guests uh, as well. So I really hope that uh, you'll you'll um, you know show us some love on uh, on the Kickstarter, and uh, we promise we will over deliver. We will we will we will what what, what comes back will live long, and it'll be awesome. Well, so, and if you don't, we'll double dumbass on you. <laughs> we we know we have the best fans of the show, so we're we're, we're counting on you. That's right, and uh, we hope you'll 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 come through because we really want to do this, and we think it's going to be great. And uh, I uh, I'm I'm telling you, you know, boy, what a great response we got to uh, Deck seventy eight with Kenny Wall. Yeah, that was, people loved that episode. That was yep. nice, and he loved it. He was so appreciative, um, which was nice to hear. Because obviously I'm a big fan of that show. I love when we can give back to the people that the people, you know, there's that show, the toys that made us, the 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 people that made us. It's like when we had Bob Butler on, you yeah. know, or, or 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 Kenny. It's just like all these people that were huge influences on us who who made us the people we are today. Not to insult them, and uh, <laughs> it's so great. It's so great when we can when we can give back. And, and shine a light because I always say this: we stand on the shoulders of giants. And so, whenever we can look back at whether it's you know um, people like uh, Joe D'Agosta or um, a lot of people who worked in this business, you know, like David Burke, it's 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 great. And that's why I like doing the show. But I only got a couple episodes left before uh, season's over. So oh, that's right. Got to make it count. 
and then we're going to do a special on you. Yeah, that's right. Just, I, I told uh, Darren, Ashley, I said for my last episode, uh, when I stepped down, I should you should do a roast. You should like a Friars yeah. Club roast. You should do an Altman roast. We can start that right now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't we actually yeah. do it all the time? <laughs> yeah, okay. You can just mispronounce every word. That's um, right. Yeah, but just make sure there's plenty of non-sparkling bottled water on hand. Well, Speaking of which, I showed the kids. We showed the kids Free Enterprise last night. They, oh I could God. not. Oh, my God. Oh, was that, was that rough? We could not. Um, they, they, they've been bugging me forever about seeing it. And uh, finally, I had to give in because uh, when we record this, we're about to do a panel at Comic-Con on Free Enterprise. And they wanted to see it before they saw the panel. And uh, it was interesting. It was very interesting. It's, they they uh, said, wow, that Mark character he is a real asshole. <laughs> they said you're not as bad anymore, which is which was a ni nice compliment. Anymore, anymore, yeah, exactly. anymore. They and loved you, you Darren. Like Eric oh my God, Darren got big laughs. Darren got big laughs. Well, well Darren is great in that movie. Thanks. Yeah, I understand he's it, playing himself. Well, you understand wrong. Darren, you're, no, Darren was not playing any version. No, I was of playing a crazed fan. He was, yeah, he's playing a crazed oh. fan. Right, who was obsessed uh, with Bill Shatner, you know, and uh, he did a wonderful, wonderful job. I have to say, after watching the movie, I really enjoyed it. I haven't watched it in a long time. I really enjoyed it. I found it thoroughly fun, entertaining. It's a fun little moment. Found it engaging. Engaging. So, engaging. Yeah, Ashley, you weren't around when we made that, but it was I like know. a walk down memory lane. I saw so many familiar faces um, in in it. I still crack up when I see Dan Matson as Alexander. It's so wonderful. Quietly breaks my heart that I missed that era, but you know it is. What it is. At least you didn't have to stay up all night. And do that was that was a brutal couple of days. That was a brutal couple of nights. Those were night shoots, and uh, we're shooting the party at the end. Mark's thirtieth birthday party and Shatner's rap, and uh, man, those were late nights. Plus, we couldn't find the cast. There were there was a strip bar across the street, and so we were looking for Eric and Sean, uh, Patrick Van Horn, and. Um, Rafer and everybody, and we couldn't figure out where they were. Finally, one of the ADs said, I bet they're across the street, and that's where they were. So amazing. Yes. Yeah. No, that was like good times. Yeah. Good, good, good times were had by all. <laughs> then we couldn't find somebody else, and I guess they were all on, they were on Rob's trailer. God, doing what? I don't know. But you don't want to know. You can it's funny. You know where we, you shot that? That was the old Chaplin stages yeah. where Charlie Chaplin, but a Citizen Kane had shot part of the Citizen Kane there too. Yeah. So as part of the documentary, are we going to visit Rob's trailer and no. have Rob just tell us all the things that happened in it? I don't think Rob would remember. I don't think we want to know because <laughs> I think we still want to get an R rating. I don't yeah. think we want this to, to, to you know, we got an R. Or maybe it'll be like G, like Star Trek The Motion Picture. That's right. I, got it. I don't think with you it could be a G rating, Ashley. No, I'm, I'm going to try to behave. <laughs> yeah, try. Good luck, good luck with that. <laughs> But it is difficult. It is difficult. He put yeah. things in our bodies. Yeah, maybe say thing. Tell lies. <laughs> um, All anyway. Right. Okay, Darren's done. Darren wants us to go now. So uh anyway, uh what do we what do we do? Social, right? We're on social at yes. Inglorious Trek, or um you can now find us on uh Instagram and threads at Instagram at I'm uh, not on threads anymore, but um, no, no, but Inglorious Trek is. Inglorious, Inglorious Trek. Trek Experts actually, Inglorious Trek Experts is on threads and on Facebook. 
Right. Darren apparently is not, but if you want to follow me, I am. Yeah, um, follow him. And we're on Twitter and uh, yeah, Facebook. Scooter. And uh, on a scooter. Yeah, follow me on a scooter. Exactly. <laughs> Son of a bitch. And uh, you can rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. And um, uh, and please, uh, uh, if you're interested in Deck 78, where we deal with Star Trek adjacent topics, you can uh, subscribe at TrekSpritzPlus.com. And of course, please go to Kickstarter and check out our page or go to MakeTheTrek.com uh, to help us realize our dream of doing an epic documentary about the locations of Star Trek. So uh, that's make really it about like it. Make a wish Foundation. That's great. It's like- yeah, and, and don't miss us in Austin, Texas, where we'll be uh, back at, uh, with our good friends at GalaxyCon um, talking Trek. Now, it's going to be interesting because of the restrictions that SAG has given to their actors about what they can and can't talk about. So um, I got a couple of questions. I think that'll be just fine. Um, yeah, what you have for you breakfast this morning? Right. Um, what are you well, planning on having for dinner? Right. Well, you um, said it you want for dinner? Yeah. Just very well, Mark. That you know we're kind of um, smugglers. You know, it's like we 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 start off the, the the questions in the conversation about you know Star Trek and what have you, but really we want to talk about other stuff. So we'll just talk about the other we'll stuff. Just, we'll just skip the Star Trek. We'll, we'll skip, skip the Star, Star Trek. We'll just exactly. treat it like an episode where we skip yeah. the Star Trek. I know, but we can't ask other. Terry Farrell about Back to School again now. Right. Well, we can. Yeah. Because, just, you know, oh, when people hear that, answer. they're going to run out to rent it and to buy it. on. So, like, Her residual. I, I, go I, I got to tell you, some of these rules are nuts. They're silly. Like, I understand the picketing and I understand, you know, obviously there's certain things you can't do. Um, but this whole idea that you can't talk about your career, you can't talk right. about... Um, Things you've done in the past it's is silly. ridiculous. If it isn't funded by the studios, right? Then that's it one thing. Be okay, that's I agree. Like Comic Con, I understand why they don't want them going to a panel to support a movie they're doing now that the studio has brought them to. But if it's an yeah. autograph show where the money is going to the actor's pocket or yeah. convention for the fans, that yeah. the studio does not benefit from. In fact, the studio actively works against. Right. It's ridiculous to say, oh, you can't talk about doing Star Trek or you can't talk. Yeah, about- it's like asking them to be on strike against themselves. Totally. Which is weird. And it's yeah. like, and if you, you know, if you have any sort of peek whatsoever, you know, into the sort of the backstage of all of that with the convention thing, it's like so many of these, these actors, like the, the reason why, you know, the, the convention circuit and convention tour is so important is like they, they do really well, man. It's like it's it's how they it's how they it's because their residuals deal. suck. They have that's to go right. to these conventions to make up yeah. for the lost residuals. That's so right. if anything, that's uh, that's another reason they should be able to do it. And wow. even the WGA isn't saying you can't talk about stuff you worked on. You just can't talk about stuff you're working on that the studio has paying you to be there. Arranged, yeah. yeah, right. So you can talk about like, yeah, I did the show and you know what it was like, everything like that. Well, anyway, things will be anyway. sorted out. And uh, we, we hope so. Gentlemen, as always, a delight and a pleasure to see you both. Another wonderful episode with Stephen Bingham. And I look forward to seeing you here again next Thursday at the appointed place for the Kuno Calafi. <laughs> <laughs> so on behalf of Darren Ashley Miller and myself, Mark A. Altman, bang a gong and keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. <laughs>